So last week, uh, Adam complained about how short my sermon was. He won't have anything to complain about tonight, on that front at least. It's, I, I, I don't actually know how long this will be, but it's, it's not short. One of the things I really love about my job is that it gives me the room that I want to, to share my love of Scripture with people. And I mention that because tonight what I'm going to attempt to do in this sermon is uh, to try to show some of the depth of coherence that there is between our scripture readings tonight and some of the way that that depth kind of resonates specifically with the season of Advent out of which these readings come. And so I mention that because I, I sort of as a, as, as a disclaimer, because I think that uh, it may be pretty scripturally dense and it may require a degree of attention out of you in our reading that maybe uh, you might not be used to or that, that is not typical, but I think it's worth it. And to try to help you in that attending work that you'll need to do for the next little bit, I just want to say that there's basically two major Old Testament motifs or themes that I'm going to try to trace through our Isaiah reading uh, on into our Luke reading. And what those motifs are is, firstly, the story of the flood narrative, and more broadly, the way that that narrative uh, is, emerges in a covenant, God's covenant with humanity. That's the first major Old Testament motif, and the second one is the motif of miraculous birth, of people that were formerly barren being made able by God to have babies. And I actually want to begin toward the latter part of our Isaiah reading with these words. This, for me, is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah should never again deluge the earth. After Christmas break, we're going to begin part two of our Genesis study. We're, we're titling that The Deluge. It's the story of Noah, chapters approximately six through eight or nine-ish in Genesis. And as we read the story of Noah next, like, you know, beginning in uh, the, the first Tuesdays in, in January, we're going to notice, among other things, that that story has a figural or a prophetic quality to it that the events of the deluge point beyond themselves into the future toward later times and events which will fulfill and complete the events of the flood. There's a kind of imaginative fecundity or potency and fruitfulness in the narrative of the flood, a fertility and a sense of promise, recognizable as something that's going to keep paying dividends way beyond the scope of the immediate narrative of the flood itself. So to just reiterate this point, the deluge, it's not just an event in itself, but it is the emergence in history of a divine purpose. Indeed, it's arguably the first major signal of the trajectory along which God is going to move the cosmos in the aftermath of the fall. I think that the intrinsic potency, this imaginative fertility of the flood narrative, of the deluge, it derives from at least two things. Firstly, it's all the water in the story, which narratively, water, narratively in scripture, it's almost shorthand for creation itself. Water in scripture, 
It's almost this kind of elemental symbol or sign of God's gift of being to everything that there is. Secondly, that imaginative potency of the flood narrative comes from the way that the deluge amounts to a kind of definitive before and after. It's a definitive before and after kind of moment. In the flood, God is acting decisively to begin healing the damage of the fall. The deluge is God's catastrophic refusal to let his creation spiral into oblivion. It's a decisive cataclysmic ending, which is at the same time the beginning of God recreating everything that has been damaged by the fall. We'll read in a few weeks, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. At the end of the flood, when the water subsides, God will give humanity the gift of a covenant. Out of nothing but his own determination, there's a hard and fast limit that emerges in human history. A limit on how bad it can get. A promise totally unwarranted by our deserving, but which nonetheless demarcates a before and an after. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Springing forth from nothing but God's love, God promises, in short, in this covenant with Noah and humanity, he promises never to give up on us, no matter what we do. Old Testament writers like Isaiah, they picked up on the imaginative potency of the flood narrative in their own writing. In our reading tonight, the people of Israel have been egregiously wayward and incessantly unfaithful in their relationship with God. And the consequence of that waywardness has been devastating. It's brought the people to the brink of wondering if God might not utterly abandon them, as a man might divorce an unfaithful wife. But Isaiah's prophecy instead envisions a time when again there will emerge in history a never-again moment. A new covenant will be given in which the Lord will wed himself forever to his people. This covenant will be shaped as a marriage in which divorce is entirely out of the question. A wife married in youth and then cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I abandon you, but with great tenderness I will take you back. In an outburst of wrath, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with enduring love, I take pity on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This, for me, is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah should never again deluge the earth. So I have sworn not to be angry with you or to rebuke you, though the mountains leave their place and the hills be shaken. My love shall never leave you, nor my covenant of peace be shaken says the Lord who has mercy on you. 
The result of this new covenant is actually described earlier on in our Isaiah reading, in the first half of what we read this evening. And what Isaiah most emphasizes about this marriage is that it's going to be, fruit, it's going to be fruitful. Raise a glad cry, you barren one who did not bear. Break forth in jubilant song, you who were not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the deserted wife than the children of her who has a husband, says the Lord. This couple that Isaiah is envisioning in describing this new covenant, this couple is going to have so many kids, they're going to have to radically expand their living quarters to make room for them. Enlarge the space of your tent. Spread out your tent clothes unsparingly. Lengthen your ropes and make firm your stakes. For you shall spread abroad to the right and to the left. Your descendants shall dispossess the nations and shall people the desolate cities. So the new covenant will be a transformation. It's not just a marriage, but it's going to be a transformation from barrenness, from infertility, toward miraculous and abundant childbearing. And so here we see the way that Isaiah is weaving together this other major motif or theme uh, that stands with this kind of massive center of gravity in the narrative of the Old Testament. Infertility and barrenness miraculously overcome by God and the way that 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 fertility and miraculous births have ramifications for God's people and his propulsion forward of his saving plans and purposes. You know what I'm talking about. If you're at all familiar with the Old Testament, the, the, the really big one that comes to mind or should come to mind right away is God's promise to Abraham that his descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. But conspicuously, he's old as all get out and his wife has never conceived a child. They're infertile as a couple. And yet, amazingly, out of God's intervention in their lives, they have a son, Isaac, through whom the the promise to Abraham will begin to be fulfilled. Think more broadly of of the centrality of the Hebrew women's fertility in the story of Exodus. That story turns upon the abundance of childbearing among the people of Israel, in, among the Hebrews in Egypt. It is what makes them a threat or a perceived threat to Pharaoh and uh, a refusal to abandon their sons, um, by, uh, especially by um, the, the, the midwives of, of Israel, is, uh, is part of the way through which God ends up delivering the people out of Egypt Or think of the importance of the prophet Samuel, one of the most significant leaders of God's people in the Old Testament, who is born to a mother previously barren, grievously barren. The book of 1 Samuel begins with Hannah, Samuel's mom, lamenting to the point that she sounds like a crazy person, the fact that she can't conceive children. And God gives her what she wants. And in return, she gives to God, her son, Samuel, who becomes an incredibly important figure in the leadership of God's people. Isaiah is drawing upon all of that narrative material in his vision of the new covenant. 
We have, moreover, we have this reading tonight as an Advent reading. We have it tonight because the Christian season of Advent is narratively preoccupied with the conception and the birth of babies. Not just one baby, actually, but in fact, the natural paradigmatic readings of Advent, the ones that capture the basic shape of the season of anticipation that we're in, they're stories about pregnant ladies, the stories of the conceptions of John the Baptist and Jesus in the wombs of their mothers, Elizabeth and Mary. I mean, I think indisputably, that's kind of, those are the, the go-to readings for this time of year. In fact, the story of Elizabeth, who was John the Baptist's mother in Luke chapter 1, it so closely follows the Old Testament pattern of infertility overcome by God's miraculous intervention. It so closely follows that pattern that almost as soon as we start reading it, we're like, oh, I know what's going to happen already. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiha, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And we're immediately like, God's going to help that lady get pregnant whenever we read that story. We already know what's going to happen. And yet, as perfectly as Elizabeth follows the Old Testament pattern, it's actually the story of Mary that perfects and that fulfills the motif of formerly barren mothers who conceive. Mary's story takes the concept of barrenness to radical extremes because she's not merely barren, she's a virgin. As such, the words from our Isaiah reading, for he who has become your husband is your maker, those words are fulfilled in Mary. Because whereas with the Old Testament women who preceded her, and even with Elizabeth, the Lord intervened to heal or to make fruitful natural bodily processes, in Mary's womb, the Lord accomplishes a new genesis, a creation out of nothing. As in the beginning, darkness covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. So in Luke's gospel, the Holy Spirit overshadows the darkened waters of Mary's womb and conceives the firstborn of a new creation. Isaiah's summons in our reading, therefore, when he says, Raise a glad cry, you barren one who did not bear. Break forth in jubilant song. That summons is answered finally and most completely by the Virgin Mary in Luke chapter 2 and her song of praise to God for her pregnancy, her Magnificat. The conception of Jesus, to summarize here, the conception of Jesus in Mary's womb is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about a time when God will marry his people. These two motifs these majoral scriptural threads that we've been teasing out in Isaiah and into the beginning chapters of the Gospel of Luke. A new covenant, that's our first one, that demarcates a before and an after, a never again and a what, what it's going to be now going forward. A new covenant and also the motif of childbearing and barrenness. 
they run through our gospel reading tonight from Luke chapter 7 as well. Although they are a bit more subtle, nonetheless, I want us to see that these motifs are actually at the heart of our gospel reading. As for the theme of covenant, John the Baptist's ministry of preaching and of baptism in the wilderness was a decisive demarcator in the history of God's people. His ministry is a before and an after moment. Jesus himself says so explicitly later on in Luke chapter 16. He says this, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the news of the kingdom of God is preached. Here in our gospel reading from Luke 7, Jesus points out that John was a prophet. And not just any prophet, Jesus says. He's the prophet Malachi was talking about in Malachi chapter 3. I don't think he actually says Malachi's name here, but maybe the people knew their Bibles well enough to know that that's what he was quoting from. But I'm telling you, that's what he's quoting from is Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Jesus ends the quotation there, but if you keep reading... And what, the, like the rest of that verse in Malachi chapter 3, here's what comes next. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. John, Jesus is saying, was the one spoken of in Malachi's prophecy. He was the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. But what Jesus is saying here in Luke 7 about John the Baptist is ultimately a claim about himself. He's saying, I am the Lord, suddenly come, and with my arrival, a new covenant is emerging in history. What about this motif of miraculous childbearing and barrenness turned into fruitfulness? We catch a glimpse of it in Jesus' phrase, among those born of women. Among those born of women. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. But here's an important question. Who else are there in the world except folks who have been born of women? Who the heck is Jesus talking about? Among those born of women, none is greater than John. But who is there in the world except people who have been born of women? It's important to, to remember here the way that Luke places John the Baptist's conception and birth right alongside Jesus' conception and birth. Because there's, there's something of a shift that takes place from one to the next. Jesus is the only human being about whom it is not quite enough to say that he is born of women. He is born of a woman, to be sure. Mary's his mom. He's fully human. And he comes from Mary in the same way that all the rest of us came from our mothers. And yet it's not quite enough to say about him that he is born of women. Because he's the beginning of a new way of being human. Everyone who was born of women, 
from Cain and Abel until John the Baptist were born in sin. They were children, we could say, of Adam. But Jesus is not the son of any earthly father. Though Jesus is born of Mary, something radically new has happened in his birth. But do you think that Jesus is talking about himself when he says, among those born of women, or when he says, uh, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist? He's not. He's not just, at least he's not just talking about himself when he says, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. We can tell he's not just talking about himself because of the way that the people who are listening react to what Jesus says in this moment. I'm talking about that last part of our gospel reading in the parentheses right there. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Jesus says, John the Baptist was a really big freaking deal. He's that one that Malachi was talking about, which means the new covenant is here. And yet, as big a deal as John the Baptist was, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. And in response to that, the crowd of people that are listening to Jesus talk are like, oh, he's talking about us. We're those ones that are the least in the kingdom of God and that are greater even than John the Baptist. They declared, John, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. The greatness of those who are least in the kingdom of God comes not from themselves, but from Jesus' greatness. It's not their work that they are rejoicing in in this moment. They respond to Jesus' words by praising God. They declare God just. They recognize that their place in the kingdom is entirely a gift, and yet they are celebrating nonetheless because of something that has objectively changed for them, something that is absolutely true about themselves. Mysteriously and yet definitively, Christ's own greatness has come to be mapped onto all those folks who were baptized in the River Jordan. In contrast to the celebration of the baptized people, the Pharisees and the lawyers don't rejoice because, Luke tells us, they had rejected the purpose of God for themselves. What exactly is the purpose of God? The most immediate clue to answer that question is the phrase, in the kingdom of God, the least in the kingdom of God. God's purpose is to bring anyone who is willing into his kingdom. In the gospel, Jesus' arrival means that God's reign has arrived. The kingdom of God is engulfing the world as we know it in the arrival of Jesus. And there is some complexity in what the heck that means, that the kingdom of God has come. On the one hand, Jesus repeatedly speaks of it, of the kingdom, as something that's already happening, that's already bowling people over, 
But then other times he says things like, seek first the kingdom of God, which implies that the kingdom is not already entirely in our grasp. So I just want to acknowledge that there is some complexity there. But in this immediate passage, what's important to see is that there absolutely is such a thing as being a person who is either in the kingdom, one of these least in the kingdom of God, or a person who is not in the kingdom. There is such a thing as being either a person who accepts the kingdom or a person who rejects the purposes of God for himself or herself. In the same way that in the days of the deluge, people mocked Noah and so deprived themselves of passage upon the waters in the safety of the ark, so too the Pharisees and the lawyers, having refused to come into the waters of baptism, have rejected Christ and so have rejected salvation. So what difference does this make for our own lives? To close, I want to draw your attention again to the joy and the celebration that's implied here of the folks at the end of our gospel reading as they, as they praise God and declare God just. And I especially want to draw your attention to that phrase, having been baptized. Having been baptized. This contrast between the least of the kingdom in contrast to the Pharisees and the lawyers who have rejected God's purposes for them. A contrast between those who have been baptized and those who have rejected salvation. I think this is the place we most deeply need to find ourselves addressed by Scripture tonight. And here's what I want you to get from it. I want you to know that you are saved. I want you to know that you're saved. If you're a baptized Christian, you're saved, period. Sometimes we Christians live as if our fate is still basically open-ended, as if we are just as likely to end up in hell as in heaven, to put it crassly. We love God, we try to love other people, and on our good days, we feel good, we feel saved. But on other days, perhaps on most days, our love of God and neighbor is pretty unimpressive. It's not what we wish it was. Or perhaps, even worse, on most days, we just don't know how we are doing, actually. We just don't know how we're doing, good, bad, or ugly. Um, I feel like most of the time when someone asks me these days, at least at this point in my life, um, how have you been? I'm like, I think I'm pretty good. I think, I think I'm good. Uh, which sounds like a kind of noncommittal answer, but I don't, I don't mean for it to be. I mean, it's actually a pretty positive answer. You know, I mean, if I'm doing bad, I'll tell you I'm doing bad. But if I'm doing good, I'll, I'll usually say, I think I'm doing all right. Because my track record of past self-deceptions puts an asterisk on any present self-evaluation I have. I'm like, I'm doing good, but also I've been pretty good at lying to myself before. So maybe not. I don't know. I think I'm doing all right. But the ever-accumulating memory of stuff I've missed in the past, things that were in my blind spots that other people had to point out to me, still raised doubts. And on the one hand, this is just honesty. But there's a more sinister form that I think this uncertainty can take, where our standing with God, for all practical purposes, comes to be shrouded in a pall of ambiguity 
we seem to think tacitly that the outcome of our lives will be determined by some unreachably complex formula of our merits and our faults. On the surface, we may sound like we're glad that Jesus was born, that we're saved. But if you listen closely to the rhythms of our anxieties and our fears, it sounds almost as if our salvation is a pretty unsettled matter. As if our salvation in the end will be determined by whether we can manage to keep our crap together until we're dead. And if we're having a bad day, hopefully we won't get hit by a bus on that day. Because maybe we're going to go to the bad place if we do. And in fact, if we carry these subterranean fears of ours to their logical extremity, it could begin to seem like Jesus' life and death and resurrection don't make any difference at all. By contrast, in the scriptures, in our gospel reading tonight, there's very little ambiguity. There's no lack of clarity about who is saved and who's not, who's in and who's out. Simply put, the people who have been baptized have cause for celebration. They praise God. The people who have refused to be baptized, the people who have rejected Christ and so have rejected God's purpose for themselves, they have rejected salvation. And maybe most amazingly to our ears, I just want to say it again, the celebration of these least in the kingdom, including the tax collectors, it's grounded in their baptism, having been baptized it says. That's an important detail for us. Because baptism is an event. Baptism is an event. It's a happening. People were there. They saw it take place. They could testify to it. As an event, baptism has an objectivity to it outside of us. An objectivity independent of the vagaries of our own shifting perspectives about how good or bad we're doing at any given time. And what scripture and Christian tradition teach us about the event of baptism is that in that event, the saving effects of all the events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection have been mapped onto our beings. Advent is a sudden journey from a long sadness into an enduring joy. A journey from mourning to dancing, from penance to gladness, not least because in Advent we celebrate the gift of our baptism. Jesus' birth and ministry and death and resurrection inaugurated a new covenant and our baptism incorporates us, it members us into that new covenant, into the saving works of Christ. Which means our baptism is a moment in our own personal history that demarcates a clear before and after. Our joy in Advent is founded upon a confidence that matters really have been settled for us in a lasting and final way. For baptized Christians, condemnation falls under the category of never again. For by coming to us in Christ, God has cleaved himself to us in a marriage that he will never revoke. As we move in Advent from fear 
to joy, our focus shifts from what we do to what God has done. To be sure, we remain uncertain about how well or poorly we're doing at any given moment, but that uncertainty pales into comp- in comparison to our certainty about what God has done for us in Christ. As such, it is right and good and joyful that our journey together tonight should bring us to this table of communion. For here we gather as the least of the kingdom of God, who by God's mighty acts of salvation have been clothed with the greatness of Christ. Here those threads of the Old Testament, of new covenant and miraculous birth, here those threads are drawn together and made real for us. For here we remember that by the baptism of Jesus, suffering, death, and resurrection, God gave birth to the church. He delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and he made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. This for us is like the days of Noah.